Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Bishop John Shelby Spong, uh, how are you doing today? Fine, thank you. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Grateful for this chance to, to have you on our program. Uh, my listeners, the listeners to this podcast in, in particular, they, they've been through what they would call a faith journey. At some point, they've had a faith crisis. They've deconstructed... Uh, their faith and and then had to put something back together and as they've looked out uh, at the landscape looking for voices to to give them kind of some some structure some meaning some things to kind of hope in as they begin to put things back together uh, you my friend are one of those voices for maybe the one or two listeners who uh, are not aware of who you are uh, would you mind maybe just giving kind of a brief introduction of yourself, and then we'll jump into some some questions? I'd be glad to. Uh, I'm uh, I, my career was that of a bishop in the Episcopal Church. I was bishop of the Diocese of Newark, which is northern New Jersey. Uh, I was an author, and I put this all in the past tense because I retired, uh, and I mean really retired. Uh, and I writ- I've written a number of books that were designed to lead people past the, the emotional crisis of being without faith. They were books like uh, Why Christianity Must Change or Die, Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy, um, my autobiography, which told the story of how a boy from a southern, almost fundamentalist background had become a leader in the battle for gay rights and Women, women in the ministry, and other things like that. Uh, it's a right, right exciting life. Uh, I've, I've given, oh, I don't know how many, about 150 lectures a year in my retirement, and uh, I've spoken at about 500 universities. I taught at Harvard for a semester, and uh, it's just been a wonderful, exciting career. Uh, and I had a stroke in 2016 that uh, put me not out, but put me down considerably. I lost the, my right side, didn't function. I've gained that back. I'm not as steady as I used to be, but um, I'm perfectly comfortable living and, and working without aid right now. So uh, that's where I am, and it's uh, it's wonderful life. Yeah, gl- I'm glad to hear about uh, your experience. I think the listeners are going to be thrilled to have a chance to kind of just hear your voice and to hear you talk about some of these things. I'm, I'm sad to hear some of these challenges you've had recently, but but such, I guess, is the case of life. Um, That's right. It's, life's not supposed to be a bowl of cherries. Right, right. No, it's not. Um, so I want to frame the first question this way. Again, the majority of this audience, they've had the fracture. They've realized that the, the religious stories they've been told, they, those don't hold up to the the standard of being taken taken as literal, um, when this fracture happens, a lot of people just throw in the towel on not only Christianity but on religion in general. And but yet some people seem to manage putting it back together in a new way, and and they essentially rewrite their story. And it's certainly what you've done. Um, I'm I'm curious maybe what you think is the key to that. Like what what separates the person who says, look, these stories aren't literal, but there's still deep meaning here, and I still find the Christ of Scripture worth emulating and worshiping, even if that story is not literal, when so many are doing something that involves just throwing in the towel completely. 
Yeah. Well, Christianity has an interesting history. It's been it's been a mighty force for good, and it's been a mighty force for evil, uh, and both have been very true. Uh, I was a Christian in the South in my early years, and we defended segregation, we defended misogyny, we defended homophobia, all in the name of Christ. This was this was part of what we did. But the the reality is that the changes have been forced upon us over a long period of time, not a short period of time. The the first change started in the 16th century, the first one that I would begin to discuss, started in the 16th century when Copernicus, who was a Polish uh, monk, studied the stars and came to the conclusion that the earth did not rotate around, the, uh, or the sun did not rotate around the earth, and the sun was not the, uh, earth was not the center of the universe. And that was an enormous challenge because uh, everything about the Bible assumed that the earth was the center of a three-tier universe. We looked up and there was heaven, we looked down and there was hell beneath us, and the whole story was told in terms of that, that image. How can, you, how can you read that story literally when uh, the three-tier universe is obliterated? Uh, you know, God always came down on top of a mountain because that was halfway between heaven and earth. Uh, Jesus ascended into the sky at the end of his life, and that was to go up to heaven where the where the God was living. And we now are convinced that uh, that uh, God, God, there's no God up there. I mean, we've traveled in space. There's no God there. We we can't pretend that. So we've either either there is no God, and we're all wrong, or we the way we understand that God has been dramatically shifting. And we've got to come to grips with the new idea. That was just Copernicus. Uh, several hundred years later, there was Charles Darwin. The Christian story assumed that every human being was created good in the image of God and fell into something called original sin and uh, collapsed. Uh, but there's no, there's no thing in Darwin about that. But there's no sense that we were ever created perfect in the world of, of nature. And uh, original sin looks like a strange idea. But how do you tell the story of original sin without without destroying the Christian faith? Because the Christian faith says it's because we are fallen sinners that Jesus died for us. And that doesn't make any sense when you're a post-Darwinian. You could go on. I'm not going to go on. But you could go on and look at the thought of, of uh, Sigmund Freud, of Albert Einstein, of uh, Isaac Newton. These are the people that have changed the way we think. And the Christian church needs to keep up with these people and think in terms of their thought. Otherwise, we're completely irrelevant. And the battle for the Christian faith today is is a battle to find relevance in the midst of, of a world of symbols that no longer makes sense to anybody. Yeah, that's beautiful. I've heard you say before, when you mentioned Jesus's ascension into the heavens, I've heard you mention that if he ascended... Uh, if he would still be in this galaxy, if we understand like him ascending and the rate of which that that would occur, and and in the where he would be, it, that only works in a three tier universe. And so I had a chuckle That's with right. that when you've said that before. Um, as you point out, we've always made adaptations. Now, obviously, we Christianity as a religion has always been slow to react. Generally, certainly, certain denominations perhaps have moved a little faster. But generally, we're always stubborn and not wanting to budge, even when the data is pointing us in that direction. But as you're pointing out, eventually we always adapt. And so this is just one more time around that we're going to have to adapt to these stories uh, being less literal than we thought. Well, they're, they're not literal at all. They're not even true. Uh, we, we look back at our history and the creeds, which are pretty important to the Christian faith. The creeds didn't develop until the fourth, fourth century. They're fourth century reality. They're not, the, they're not a Jewish reality, and Jesus was a Jewish person trying to make sense out of his, his uh, reality. Uh, and how, do you, how does somebody say the creeds? The creeds assume a three-tier universe. The creeds assume a God above the sky. Uh, and and why, why do we feel bound to the fourth century? What's, what was holy about the fourth century? It was a time when Christianity was being translated into the Greek categories of the Mediterranean world and not uh, the original categories of Christianity. So we've got to, in some sense, the creeds have got to be deliteralized to ever be taken seriously again. Right, right. 
20 years ago, you wrote a book, Why Christianity Must Change or Die. You mentioned that in your opening uh, introduction. My, my question is, has Christianity changed? Um, where are we at in that process? And is, is Christianity responding in ways that you see as helping it to perpetuate itself? Well, those are, those are good questions. Let me unpack them a little bit. The fact is that Christianity is changing. Uh, my career began, I was ordained in 1955, so I served for the end of the 20th century. And there's great change that took place in that period of time. Uh, I grew up a segregationist. Uh, race was a, a very big reality. I didn't know I was a segregationist. Uh, segregation builds a very big wall around people and they don't know it. I didn't know, for example, that I didn't go to, that I went to segregated schools. I just assumed that's the way all schools were. And it wasn't until I began to be aware of the fact that the world is not the way I see it, uh, segregation didn't bother me at all. Uh, then I, I grew up with a, in a family where a man was not allowed to do anything in the kitchen because that was the place where women worked. Uh, I, we had no women in the church as leaders. That's changed dramatically. We've had a presiding bishop of our church who is a woman, uh, a very outstanding woman, too. And I guess that today our bishops are as many women as men. I'm being succeeded this next month in Newark by a black woman who's been elected the bishop of the Diocese of Newark, where I serve. And she's the third bishop to serve since I retired. But that's just where the change is taking place. I also we have been participant in the movement for gay and lesbian people. And when I retired, I had 35 out of the closet gay and lesbian people in the diocese serving as priests. We don't count them anymore because I don't know how many there are because you don't treat them as if they're a separate category anymore. But we've got a goodly number of them. We've got a gay bishop. Gene Robinson was elected by the Diocese of New Hampshire, and that uh, and he was confirmed by the vote of the bishops. That's an enormous change. Now, how do you have all that change when you've got the Bible that you quote and against all of those things, and the Bible clearly condemns them all? Uh, when I grew up, the Bible was quoted to provoke segregation. Uh, I can tell you the text. I won't bother to do that, but I can tell you the text. Then the Bible is quoted to, to keep women in second-class positions, and the texts are plentiful in Paul and pseudo-Paul. And then the Bible is quoted to condemn homosexuals. I've had Leviticus quoted to me so many times it's it's sort of etched in stone. And the Bible was simply wrong on those issues. Now, how do you say the Bible is wrong when you've been taught that the Bible is the Word of God? That's where the that's where the crisis comes, and you've got to stand and make a decision. I treat the Bible seriously. I don't treat it literally. I love the Bible, but I recognize it's a human book, and it's been uh, it's been warped in its understanding, and uh, the things things are just out of hand. You don't defend the Bible today without being irrelevant, and uh, and that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to embrace. We've been taught for so long that the Bible is the Word of God that uh, we assume that if you say the Bible is not the Word of God, you cease to be a Christian. Well, the Bible came into being, the New Testament came into being between 51 and 100, and that, in that period, about 50 years. Uh, what makes us think those people knew everything about the world that, that we live in? We've had enormous growth in our knowledge of the world since then, and we've got to keep up with it. Yeah, and, and I'm a deep believer in the things that you've spoken of. I've got a couple of your books myself, and, and having deconstructed the historical Jesus and uh, my religious paradigm and having uh, reconstructed those in ways they still have deep meaning to me, I'm a huge advocate of the things that you're pushing for. Here's the issue, though. For those who are critical of your work, uh, they will point out that essentially, yes, you're advocating that we become more inclusive that we become uh, less literal, that we see the meaning in these stories below the literal level. They see that as not working. They look at uh, liberal churches in the world and they see they're in decline, at least for the most part. I know of a few that are actually doing quite well. But for the most part, liberal churches tend to not be strong and vibrant in terms of a growing membership. And, and so for the critics who are pointing out that this doesn't work, uh, what are your thoughts kind of on that process um, 
in, in terms of still holding well, it? I think they're right. It, it, it doesn't work. What works is hysterical religion. If I can convince you that I have the truth and nothing but the truth, then you you aren't going to have any problems. Uh, but that's not the world we live in. I see no reason to think that Christianity ought to be successful. Uh, I think the remember Jesus died. He wasn't very successful. And he had the, the story about Jesus had to be built over generations, and I'm not sure we ever built it correctly. But that's another that's another issue. But uh, it's tough to be a Christian. It's really tough, and I don't believe that we're going to have great masses of people coming. Uh, to they, they might come if you say this is the true faith, and if you, all you have to do is believe it, trust and believe, obey, uh, then that makes people feel secure. If you say you've got to come and wrestle with the truth, you people aren't going to want to be secure. They don't want to be bothered with that. But I don't think that makes it valid or invalid. I think Christianity is getting smaller and smaller. I think it will continue to get smaller and smaller. But as it gets smaller and smaller, it will be more and more purified because it's going to be facing the realities that it's got to live with. And there will come a time, I believe, when we will stop this decline and uh, start to grow. There's no question about the fact that liberal churches who don't know who they are, they they, they can't be fundamentalists and they can't don't know what, what to be anymore. So they are declining, and the fundamentalist churches, well, they're beginning to decline too. I mean, that, that's not quite the success story it once was, but uh, but at least they are saying we have the truth, and you can you can count on us, and that's a very powerful message. It's not true, but it's very powerful. Yeah, I I come from uh, a religious paradigm where my uh, religious framework, the church I belong to, was a very fundamentalist. Uh, high demand religion, and, and that faith has split into other uh, sects of that of that church. So there are over a you know there's over like a dozen different breakoffs. Some of them have chosen to be more liberal, more inclusive. Some have chosen to be more rigid, more dogmatic. And I think these churches are all making decisions because like, you're right. I think Christianity in general is in decline. And so it's a matter of whether you want to lose people fast or lose people slow. And That's I think right. the conservative churches feel like, oh my goodness, at least we can slow things down. And these other guys are losing people even faster. But as you point out, if we look 100, 400, 1,000 years into the future, the only way Christianity seems to be able to survive is if it responds to where the data of the world leads. That's correct. We don't have 1,000 years. We probably don't have much more than the rest of this century. Uh, the present generation is simply not turned into tuned into Christianity. Uh, the millennials just don't don't. In fact, when they give their religious preference, none is an equal an equal choice between evangelical and Roman Catholic. Those are the three big choices of the millennials that, and none is growing faster than the rest of them. Uh, I don't think we've got that much time. I, I just recently wrote my last book which was uh, titled Unbelievable, why neither ancient creed nor the Reformation can give us a living faith today. And it's a book that sort of, it, it sort of it puts my whole faith into perspective. And I say, I say these things are, these things about the church are unbelievable today, and we've got to admit that. That's not going to help people to build big churches. But that's where the world is, and that's where the dialogue can take place. And I think it will take place, and I'm very comfortable in that. Uh, I, I'm sure that there'll be some in the church, uh, some people who will say I've I've sold out every tenet of the Christian faith in this book, but I haven't. I don't believe I've done that. I believe I've given every one of them an opportunity to grow and and develop a new idea. I don't believe in original sin. I don't believe that we are fallen people. I believe that we are not yet fully uh, humanized. And that's a very different thing to change. Yeah, I, I know that, again, in my religious system, in my, and I'm, I'm from the Mormon faith, in my Mormonism, my church, they are declining much slower than most of the other denominations in the world. At the same time, our own leaders have said that 73% of our uh, youth today are inactive by the age of 21. That's what the, the studies show. Yeah. 
And, and so as you yeah. point out, if we don't do something, this thing is slowly dying or in some places quickly dying no matter what. Yeah, it's just dying a lot faster than most of us in the church seem to think. The Roman Catholic Church is having an equal problem. Uh, the, the conflict going on at this moment in the Roman Catholic Church between the, the liberalizers and the old traditionists is about homosexuality. Well, homosexuality is not an issue anymore. We now know that nobody chooses their sexuality. People awaken to their sexuality. Homosexuality is not abnormal. It's simply a part of the spectrum of human sexual response. And and when that's when that's the battle, no matter who wins that battle, the church is going to lose. Uh, and I think it will. The Roman Catholic Church is is uh, the sex crisis, uh, the abuse crisis, and the uh, I, I hate to use homophobic, homosexual, because I don't think that homosexuals abuse children. But I think that when you get the, uh, when you begin to deny sex, you begin to have strange manifestations of sexuality all over the place, and you've got them going in every continent, every continent of the world. And the Roman Catholics are facing this problem. That means it's systemic. It doesn't mean that it's one or two bad apples. It means it's a systemic problem for the Roman Catholic Church. And I hate to see them in this trouble. Uh, the Cardinal Archbishop of Washington, Ted McCarrick, was the Bishop of Newark when I was the Bishop there. And uh, I know him fairly well. And I, I suspected he was involved in things that he says turned out to be quite involved in. Uh, but that's, you know, I'm not here to, to cast blame. I'm here to say you can't hide from the world forever. Yeah, very true. Um, my listeners are curious because when these faith crises happen, when these fractures happen, often you feel very alone within your own congregation, your own family sometimes will distance themselves from you. I'm, I'm just curious, maybe your thoughts on, as you talk to people who are still in orthodoxy or in a very literal perspective, and again, I come from a church that very much has truth claims that it holds to, and that makes things even tougher. Um, maybe what what things do you avoid or do, um, Bishop Spong, in terms of when you have these conversations with those who are more orthodox, what are the right things to say? What are the things to avoid saying so as to make a space for the conversation but not get yourself uh, distanced from, from those you love? Well, it, that's a real trouble, uh, that's the real trouble. But the Mormons have some terrific people, like Mitt Romney, for example, who who doesn't abide by that fundamentalistic thing. He, he's he's still a, an active Mormon, uh, and he, whether his children are going to be, I don't know. But uh, that's another issue. But uh, every church has those people. I think you love them. I don't think you try to create a, a situation. I simply will not say what I don't believe. And people ask me specifically if I believe in the virgin birth. No, I don't. I believe the virgin birth is an early Christian myth. It's not even an original myth. Paul didn't believe in the virgin birth. Mark didn't believe in the virgin birth. The virgin birth makes its appearance in the Christian scriptures in Matthew, which is about a ninth decade book. And then it disappears by the time you get to John. Why can't you look at that and see that that myths are important? I think I think the myth of the virgin birth had something to teach us, but not it, not as a literal thing. They didn't understand that women had an egg cell. They didn't understand that until the first quarter of the 18th century. And when they developed this, the when science developed the, the theory of the egg cell, then that meant that Mary, the mother of Jesus, passed on her human uh, her human qualities to Jesus. That means original sin which was received from Adam, got passed on to Jesus. But what did the Roman church do? A century later, they passed a, a doctrine that said Mary was immaculately conceived so that she was conceived without spot of sin so that Jesus doesn't wind up being uh, like everybody else. Uh, now, that's that's a very ingenious sort of thing, but that's not going to save the church from from the fact that it's made some serious mistakes throughout history. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to get some of your own personal journey. So you you talked about in your introduction and, and knowing you a little bit from reading your books and, and knowing a little bit of your story, you grew up in a in a religious 
uh, environment that had some dogma, had some rigidity, imposed some literal belief on you, and yet here you've made this shift to uh, being much more inclusive, being much more open to other meanings in the scriptures below the literal level. And I'm just curious, like, what were the major things along your journey that pushed you out of that rigidity, pushed you out of that exclusiveness, and opened you up to seeing things a different way? And maybe maybe talk a little bit about some of the things that fractured you and opened you up to that space. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a lifetime of change. Uh, the earliest recollection I have of my life came when I was about three years old, somewhere between three and four. And my father had hired two brick masons to come build a brick wall in our side yard. And he told me that I could help. And I was a, that was a thrill for me because uh, I was going to help build a wall. When these brick masons arrived, they were both black men. One was an elderly black man with white hair, and the other was a young helper. This, these were the two men. In the course of that day, this, this elderly black man said something to me. I don't remember what it was. And I replied by saying, yes, sir, or no, sir, to him, whichever was appropriate. Because my parents had taught me that I say, my, sir, to everybody who's my senior. Well, my father got very upset and picked me up and took me into the house and lectured me sternly and said to me, you do not say, sir, to a Negro. Well, that was a strange idea to me. Uh, you know, I'd done what my parents told me was a good manners. I had not been pleased. By, I'd not pleased my father by doing that. And there was something that I simply didn't understand. Uh, and why is this black man different? And I didn't understand that at all. Well, what does a three-year-old do with that? Well, I thought my father was wrong. Um, when you get to be 13 or 14, you're sure your father's wrong. But at age three, to think your father's wrong is a rather revolutionary thing. But I just swallowed it. I just put it in my book of memories and said, I'll understand this someday. When I was in the fifth grade, I'd be about 10 years old. Uh, the members of my class were invited to go to another school in Charlotte to, uh, for a patriotic assembly. World War II had just begun, and I was chosen to be one of the two or three, three or four students that went. I didn't know what I was doing, just a lark for me because I was getting out of school. We drove over to the school, and my eyes got bigger than saucers. This school was a black school. I didn't know there was such a thing as a black school. They had black teachers, a black principal, and more little black children than I'd ever seen before in my life. And and they all were. It was just a. It's just an eye-opening experience. I kept my eyes open and my mouth shut. We went into that assembly. They seated us with honor up on the stage. We stood up to sing the Lord's uh, to sing the national anthem, say the Lord's prayer. We do that in, in North Carolina in 1940. I guess it'd be 40, 43, something like that. 42. Uh, saying the Lord's prayer in school was something you did. It was just part of the life of the culture and when we said the lord's prayer everybody in that room knew the lord's prayer and said it together and i suddenly became aware that we all were praying to the same god i wondered why we didn't worship together it didn't make any sense to me when i got to be about 18 i was president of the young people of the diocese of north carolina uh who were uh, you know young christians but we were episcopalians and uh, I went to a convention of the church, and I was introduced to a man who was the, said he was the president of the young people of the diocese. Well, I was shocked by that because I thought I'd been elected to that. And he was a black man. His name was Paraliezer. And I became aware at that point that the Episcopal Church ran two parallel youth programs, one for black people, one for white people. And I didn't know about that. I wrote to my bishop and asked him if I could invite the black young people to come to our convention. You can't have a convention of the young people of the Episcopal Church if you don't include all the young people. And my bishop wrote back and said, no, the people of North Carolina are not ready for that. Well, I wonder who that would be, because I was ready for that. That was in 1948, 49. Uh, but that was before the thing got developed. Well, finally, you know, my church began to deal with black people real in reality. We had Martin Luther King Jr., who was a great black man. We had uh, Jesse Jackson, who was a black politician. We finally, in my church, we have a, a presiding bishop today named Michael Curry, who is an African-American. And the church has changed dramatically in that sense. Uh, I, I, every church I know has black members, including my church here in Richmond. Uh, you know, this is the capital of the old confederacy, but there, there are a number of black members of the church I attend here in my retirement. 
And it's a, just a thrilling thing to see. That all happened in a period of one lifetime. Now, I went through similar revolutions with my with uh, uh, the doctrine of women and, and with homosexuals. First, I was as homophobic as anybody I know. When I first knew, I didn't know there was such a thing as a homosexual until I was about 16. And when I heard the word and I heard what it was, I heard the church's response. It was an unnatural response that, uh, you know, these were these were at best, these were sick people. And at worst, these were perverted people. And that's the way I stood. And But then I began to meet gay people. They weren't neither sick nor perverted. And my life kept expanding in tremendous directions. I've just come home from uh, leading a conference at a place called Chautauqua, New York. And Gene Robinson, the gay bishop of the Episcopal Church, was present in that conference as a leader. And he's a tremendous person. Uh, he's not finished his career, but he's made a difference, an indelible difference. There'll never be again a, a situation where he's not allowed to be a bishop. And we've had several gay bishops since Gene. And that's, again, a thing that's just changing. Well, those those changes make a great deal of sense to me. And the church is stronger when they are there. Uh, I, I love to see the, the pattern of leadership changing and developing, and it's very, it's very thrilling to me. But uh, you can't have the change in every way and not go back to those ancient biblical assertions and not recognize that they too have to change because we don't believe them anymore. We don't think that way anymore. We are not fallen sinners. We do not need a savior uh, if if we if we understood that Jesus was something different from a savior, it would be an, it'd open a door, a great door. I just finished reading a book by Elaine Pagels. Elaine is a professor of Princeton at Princeton University, the religion department. She's written a book called The Gnostic Gospels, and she's she, she's a tremendous person, and she sees in the Christian faith today a deep and powerful. Uh, kind of truth. And she writes that book. It's a book called Why Religion. It's not even out yet. It's going to be out before Christmas. Why Religion? She makes a case for why we have religion. And, and she makes a powerful, non-fundamentalistic case. I think that book's going to be a great book for a lot of people to read. Beautiful. As, as you've had these fractures in your own life, and as you've chosen to be uh, outspoken and to be an advocate for inclusiveness, an advocate for understanding, uh, to for navigating and helping us kind of enter these conversations where we start to talk about these these sacred stories not being literal. Um, can you talk maybe for a moment about the kind of pushback you've gotten? Have you gotten pushback? Of course. I, I, I know you have, but maybe to the to the level that that's been, and some of the some of the uncomfortableness of how harsh people can be. Yeah, well, it's it's very true. I've I've uh, I had the House of Bishops vote to disassociate themselves from me and from my diocese in in the year two th oh, what year nineteen ninety I guess I was, and uh, they thought that was going to be a great victory for them, but they won by four votes in the House of Bishops. It was eighty seventy eight to seventy four with two abstentions, and I was one of the two abstentions because I didn't know how to vote on whether I wanted to abstain. Or be with myself or not, but uh, that that th th we've won that battle. Though we won that battle, I stood up and made a forty-five minute speech to the House of Bishops after that vote, in which I outlined my view on homosexuality and told about why I had changed my mind and what what had happened to me. And ten, ten or twelve bishops came up to my chair afterwards and said, "If I could have heard you speak before." I voted, I would have voted the other way. I knew we had a majority of the bishops from that moment on, and that majority held forever, which it's no longer even a close majority. Uh, that's a shift and change. And I'm not even controversial in my church anymore, I don't believe. Uh, maybe it's because I'm not retired. Nobody thinks about that. But I don't I don't run into that that kind of crazy fundamentalistic hostility anymore. Because I've I've done my homework and I'm on the higher ground than they are, and they don't want to take me on. But uh, there's plenty of it there. But that church is dying. That old church with those fundamentalistic beliefs that's dying, as you say, not as fast. Because you're always going to keep some people feeling happy if you can just assure them that you you have the truth. But it's not going to last forever. 
you know, just it just it's just not going to last forever. And the Christian church is going to have to change dramatically. And it's going to get smaller. It's not going to get bigger. We're not going to be a success story. But I believe we can make a make a real difference in the life of our society. And I think we will do that. Were you ever tempted to walk away from your church, one, but maybe from Christianity in general, or or had you always just felt like there was something deeper here and you've maybe had an, I don't want to say an easy time, because I, I don't think that's the right way to say it, but you were always um, inclined to stay and, and to work these things out? I think I've always been a deeply religious person, and I don't understand quite why. My mother was a fundamentalist Presbyterian. My father was a non-attending Episcopalian. He died when I was 12 years old. Uh, my father my father had a very interesting relationship with the church. It was sort of not a relationship at all. But as soon as he died, the people from my church came to me and said, Oh, isn't it, isn't it wonderful? Your father's now with God. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Because you told me the things I've learned in your church is my father was anything but with God when he was alive, but he gets to be with God when he dies. That didn't make any sense to me. Uh, then, I, then I, I was I was raised as one who would bargain with God. You know, that's that was the level of my intelligence at that point. At age twelve, I was so scared of uh, not having a father that uh, I, I didn't want to admit that even. And I would bargain with God. God would help me out if I'd do certain things for God. And that lasted till about 15. And then 15, I began to be be raised in, in the issues of my world, like evolution and Copernicus and Einstein and Freud, Sigmund, uh, Isaac Newton, all these great heroes. And they constantly made me think about the, the Christian faith again. And I, I came to a different understanding of Christianity. I don't want, I will never leave Christianity. I'm in church every Sunday. Uh, I really love going to church, and I, I don't always agree with everything they said. But I, I think in the mainstream that the church is making progress. Uh, I went to, I went to church recently, and the, the woman who was a preacher in, in this service, she went back and referred to the great battle about homosexuals that we fought in the church when Gene Robinson was confirmed. I think that was about 2003. And she said, I was at that convention and I saw the two sides with, they, they had spokesmen that spoke every other time, pro and con, pro and con. And I looked at that group and the people that were con uh, were, were, they were con about everything. The people that were pro were pro about everything. And I suddenly decided, which one of those groups would Jesus be a member of? And it was clear to me he wouldn't be on the con group. And that's uh, that's that's uh, 15 years after Gene Robinson. And this woman said, that's when I made my decision. Well, right now, we, you couldn't vote homosexuals out of the church today. You couldn't if you, the, the Supreme Court has, has given equality of marriage to all people. You get married in Mississippi if you're, if you're a homosexual. And the world is living with those realities, and it's getting every year that every year that goes by is another year that that an inclusiveness about that that position comes in into being. Now people say, well, don't you think homosexuals can sin? Yes, they can sin. So everybody can sin. That doesn't make any difference. And we there are no such thing as perfect homosexuals. There are no such thing as perfect heterosexuals either. And most of the terrible things about sex are the are the games of predator, of uh, heterosexual people anyway. Most child abuse is done by heterosexuals. Divorce is a heterosexual thing. Child abuse and, and spousal abuse is mostly a heterosexual thing. We've got a lot of work to do in the area of sex. But you're not going to do it by starting out by saying sex is evil and that only heterosex is good and homosex is not. That means you don't know many people that you haven't have had to form that uh, kind of definition that uh, affirms your, your prejudice. That's not going to work. Right. Yeah. I, I, again, the religious system I, I come from had a very racist past and had they held on to those racist doctrines and, uh, and policies and that culture, 
our church today would be completely irrelevant, right. if not completely decimated. And and the very same thing is happening right now in my religious system with the LGBT issues. Um, the church is wrestling with having to let go of some of the things it said in the past, but still trying to maintain this dividing line. And so in our in our religion, in Mormonism, uh, homosexuals still are not welcomed into full activity it, unless they remain celibate their entire lives, yeah. and you're seeing that take a toll on the church. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you kind of speak of these things in terms of generalities within Christianity, that these things just cannot persist. They can. We've, no, we've made a, we've made a, we've made a battle out of saying who's us and who's them and anybody who isn't us is the bad guy. And we, we find ways to vilify them. And I think you're seeing the younger generation no longer will tolerate that. That's right. The Roman Catholic church, it's attitude toward women. It's, it's going to, it's going to look another five years or so. It's going to look like slavery. Uh, they, they, that is not going to hold. The Roman Catholic Church will ordain women to the priesthood and to the bishopric. But uh, they wouldn't dare admit it. But Francis is laying the groundwork right now for that to happen. Yeah, yeah. Again, when problems stand in front of us and those problems are going to keep us as institutions from being uh, continually growing or, or even moving along or perpetuating, suddenly solutions uh, come into sight and are utilized. I, I want to get your opinion, and you're welcome to speak about Mormonism specifically. You're welcome to speak about maybe high-demand fundamentalist religions generally. But I want to I want to start this question off with a quote of yours. Uh, you wrote once, you said, my experience is that whenever a person, a church, a denomination, or a religion claims to possess the truth and thus be the only val valid pathway to God— that person, that church, that denomination, and that religion turns demonic. There is an incredible arrogance present when any human being or any religious tradition believes it has cornered the market on the truth of God and can therefore judge anyone who disagrees with them as wrong, inadequate, heretical, or whatever. That's the very culture of the religious system I grew up in. And I agree with you 100%, but I want... I want to get your thoughts on, again, either Mormonism specifically or other religions today that still are high demand fundamentalists, us versus them, we have the truth, everyone else is somehow more lost than us. Um, maybe your thoughts on that quote in relationship to some of these systems that are still out there. Yeah, well, they are out there, but they're not going to be not going to be very strong. I enjoyed seeing the Book of Mormon in New York when I was a bishop very much. Uh, and that that play casts a, a sort of spoof at at some of those religious traditions of the Mormons. But in the last analysis, it it said it said that that's okay to have those religions. Don't take them literally. And and the play was a rather popular play. It's now playing in Richmond. I, I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, and that play is going to do a lot of things. It's going to it's going to infuriate a lot of Muslims, not Mormons. But it's going to, those that are already broken from the Mormon church, it's going to open their eyes to see things in a new way. Uh, what makes me think, what makes anybody think that my mind can embrace the truth of God? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little tiny symbol. Um, I'm, my mind is capable of embracing a little bit of reality. I haven't got any idea what ultimate reality is. I can't. I can't embrace the fact that I live in a universe of uh, more stars in the heaven than there is sand on the beaches of the world. Uh, I, I can't embrace the fact that we live at such huge distances. That my my universe is a tiny little universe in the in a, uh, a galaxy called the Milky Way, and the next galaxy is millions and millions of miles away, and there are probably four billion galaxies in the visible world. How do you break, embrace that in reality? How can, you, how can you do that when you're sure that God is a man who lives above the sky, who comes down periodically and invades the world? Those things just don't go together. And, and I think you've got to be living in a world that, that allows you to dream and to to raise stories and tell myths that help you understand what you do not understand. And that's part of the religious function. And I don't believe there's a possibility that 
the religion of yesterday will continue to be the religion of tomorrow. Yeah, as as you're saying that, I'm thinking again as I go back into my own my own religious upbringing. Um, I'm a convert to Mormonism, 17 years old, and and I served as a as a lay clergy um, when I was in my late 20s. And one of the things that Mormonism does is it says not only uh, was there Moses, Noah, and Abraham, and these guys had access to God magic, and these guys could perform incredible miracles like parting seas and calling down fires from heaven. Um, Not only that, but in the present moment, we claim there's somebody on earth who has those exact same powers. And as you're pointing out, there's, there's an incongruity because people who are living in an age of information, in an age when you can type in a few letters on a keyboard, hit enter, and have information on almost anything, That's right. the members of my religious system are looking around and they're seeing our top leaders and they're, and they're consciously or unconsciously seeing that these men don't have the same powers that Moses, Noah, and Abraham have, which is forcing, I think, my religion specifically, but I think Christianity in general, to recognize, like, wait a minute, in an age of verifiable, recordable history, things don't seem to happen the way we're told they happen. Um, again, that wrestle is causing a lot of heartache to yep. people as they have to deconstruct their religious faith. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions for people who are just in the early stages of what I think is best described as crisis, although you and I both know it eventually you look back and you say that was incredible growth. Do you have any suggestions for people as they're deconstructing their religious system to help that be smoother or to feel less alone in that? I'm not sure you can. Uh, you see, I don't think Moses had that power either. Uh, the Moses story, if, if we take it literally, he's Moses is about 1200, 1250 B.C. The stories of Moses weren't written until the ninth, the 10th decade, some 300 years later. There's a lot of time for stories to grow between the time they supposedly happened and the time that they get written down. And it's easy to ascribe heroic tales to great figures. If Moses split the Red Sea, uh, he went about 400 miles out of his way uh, on the journey to the Holy Land. And there's, there's just no way that can happen. Uh, the Red Sea is about 70 miles long, and uh, it's not even a good story. As the story says that God put the Red Sea back together again so it would drown all the Egyptians. That's not a very very pleasant view of God if you happen to be an Egyptian. So I don't know why people take seriously stuff that is before history where we know that that, uh, that there's a wild imagination. Uh, I think you can... I, I took in my last book the... Uh, called Unbelievable. I took the miracles of Jesus. I went through them one by one by one by one. And there there are all sorts of new ideas that can be uh, can be gained from the way the the book happened. Uh, did Jesus split the split the bread and wine of uh, the loaves and fishes to feed enough people to feed five thousand people on the Jewish side of the lake and four thousand people on the Gentile side of the lake? Not very likely. But that's that's a story that was told in Christian history. But remember, Jesus died in 33 or thereabouts, and the first gospel was not written until about 73. That means for 40 years there was no gospel written down, and when it was written down, it was it was uh, enhanced. Uh, we look at the story of Jesus' resurrection. Most people are not aware that Mark, the first gospel, never has a story of Jesus' resurrection occur in it. It's just not there. He says he has a messenger who who reveals to the women that he is not in the grave and that they will see him when they return to their home in Galilee, but he never appears in Mark's gospel. And that's that's a story that people ought to take seriously. Uh, if you look at John's gospel, Mary is the Mary Magdalene is the only one that ever sees the, the risen Jesus. Everybody else uh, well that's not quite right. Mary's the only one that sees the un on uh, ascended Jesus, a raised but undescended Jesus, and and she doesn't recognize him, and and uh, John, the beloved disciple, comes in the next story and he sees the empty tomb and he believes without ever seeing a body, and it, it's finally they they bring the body in, into the uh, room with the disciples, 
And Thomas, the other disciples ought already believe. Thomas finally believes because he's been able to see. And Jesus says, Thomas, you believe because you're seen, but blessed are those who do not see and still believe. That's an open Christian story to a brand new definition. And uh, those stories are just so wonderful if you get into them and go deep enough and uh, they, they, they become powerful again. And, and you say as people deconstruct those stories and as they enter the anguish of no longer fitting cleanly in their religious system, you say there's not really a, a, a recipe to soften that. And I wonder maybe even if you would argue that you, you wouldn't want to do that anyway, like the wrestle's important, that going through that stage of anguish is important to the growth that lays on the other side. I think that's exactly right. What Elaine Pegos does in this book that I mentioned earlier called Why Religion, she talks about her personal life. It's a tragic life. She lost a five-year-old son, and she lost her 40-something-year-old husband in a mountain climbing accident within the same year. And she lived through that grief experience, and she finally came uh, to the point where she could look back and see how the Christian faith had met her in that experience. It is not the way people think it is. Yeah, yeah, I feel that way too. Um, I've got kind of another question or two here, and then I want to end talking for a moment about the about tearing down the literalness of the historical Jesus and finding meaning still there. But I want to start with a, with a question here about ritual and myth. You and I both realize that that the discussing the literalness of these stories is the least useful way to dive into these things. Like, let's just set that off to the side. But but I am assuming you still realize the importance of ritual and myth and what power those things have to um, give us meaning in life and to give us stories in order to to wrestle with our own morality and to develop, to, to just be a human being who moves out of um, binary thinking and, and begins to see nuance, one who looks to outer authorities and works into a life of finding authority within themselves. I, I know you find value in that, but I, but the problem is whenever myth stories are created by any religious system, it seems like the majority of the adherents to that religion feel a need and impose on others a need to take those stories literally. In other words, Myths are important, and for those who have moved beyond the literal, we see how um, incredibly uh, inspiring it is to continue to stay in those stories and think about them in new ways. At the same time, there's always going to be the majority of people, at least in our present day, who feel a need to impose those stories as literal. How, How do we find value in the myth without allowing us collectively to impose those stories in ways that only are used as weapons on others. Yeah, I find your question interesting because you you know they're myths when you create them, and then you must know there's something wrong when you literalize them because a myth that's literalized is not a myth anymore. Uh, I, I think we just have to take the fact that we are human beings with human brains. Whatever made us think that... Uh, our human brains can embrace the reality of the universe. Uh, I look at I look at the world of animals. A bird, a, a bug doesn't recognize what what a bird is, but he he lives in a strange relationship with the bird, and he usually gets devoured by the bird. Uh, but how can a how can a bug tell you what a bird is? How can a horse tell you what a man is? How can a man tell you what God is? I don't think it's possible. I think you have to have a myth, and then you have to know it that your myth is going to unravel because all myths unravel. None of myths are ultimately true. But they lead you past the, the crisis in your thinking, and you begin to see the whole world as mythological. Uh, I don't know about uh, about what, what the realities of life are, but I know how I trust. I trust life. I trust life after death. I, I believe that we human beings can penetrate the the time boundaries and we can escape time and we can uh, have some experiences that are really rather rather real and precious but you don't literalize any of it you just give thanks for it and and you keep growing and changing uh, I, the God I worship calls me to be 
all that I can be. He caused me to live fully. He caused me to love wastefully. He caused me to be all that I can be. And I've got to, that's a lifetime job for me. And I got to continue to to roll through those processes in in my life. And and I'm never going to be secure in my religion. But you don't have to be secure. God is the only one that's secure in this world. You've got to be a seeker and a searcher. And uh, you're going to find the reality of the myth eventually. But it's going to be in the world of uh, myth is never truth. And myth is a a way of seeing truth that that will finally disappear as truth becomes more and more apparent. Uh, Jack, as as I've got a I've got a good group of friends here in uh, in southern Utah where I live, and all of us as a group we've deconstructed um, Christianity in general. We've deconstructed our specific religious system, Mormonism, and yet we still find ourselves wrestling with spirituality. We still find ourselves wrestling with the Christ of faith. We still find ourselves wrestling with what lies out there in the cosmos. And I'm curious, just again, I, I know you're only sharing your opinion and, and your opinions, one opinion among you know billions of others. But I am curious as you've wrestled with this over the course of your life, what you think, like, do you think consciousness, your consciousness extends beyond death or, or do you even not even want to, like, do you want to stop shy of even answering that question? Well, I, I don't mind answering it, but I would say that anytime you t- you talk about that, you're speaking about something you don't ultimately know. I trust that. Uh, you know, I, my consciousness. I I I live in a world where, uh, well, I don't know how to say it, but I live in a world which is always bigger than I am. And uh, when I had a stroke, and and it was a powerful experience for me. Uh, I, I simply fell over on the floor, and and uh, as far as I was concerned, I was unconscious. But I wasn't unconscious because I was sort of floating around in the room, and I would watch people working on my body. And uh, they started cutting off my shirt. I was wearing a clerical shirt, and they started cutting it off. So they could put sensors on my chest, and I urged them not to cut my shirt off. That was part of my identity. And they didn't hear me because they they didn't see me or hear me. But anyway, they cut the shirt off and gave it to my wife and rushed me to the hospital and did all sorts of things. And the next day when I woke up, I couldn't move my right arm. I couldn't move my right leg. But I had this clear memory that I'd fainted or gone down and that they had cut my shirt off. I knew that. And they had given it to my wife. And she told me that they had cut it off and given it to her. And, and I said, I know that. And she said, how do you know that? And she said, well, I saw it. Well, how can you see it if you're in unconscious? Well, I don't know how that works. I just know that this consciousness is some bigger than I am. And uh, I believe in life after death. I think Carl Jung, when he raised the possibility of the collective unconscious, raised the possibility that we can participate in life after death in this life by participating in the collective unconscious. I make, I become part of that collective unconscious. I think it's interesting that human beings are the only animal that can be uh, hypnotized. We can have somebody can have power over our lives. They can't be physical. And I think that's fascinating. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. I'm 87 years old. I'm probably going to die long before you will. And somehow it doesn't scare me at all because I, I'm ready to sort of meet whatever comes next. And I'm perfectly confident to, to do that. And, and I live with the triumphant faith that uh, it's going to be real. I can't tell you any more about it than that. Beautiful, beautiful. I wrote a book. I wrote a book called Eternal Life, Beyond Religion, Beyond Heaven and Hell, Beyond Theism, I think is the title, uh, in which I spent about 200, 250 pages wrestling with this question of life after death. And yes, I came to the conclusion that I believe there's something there, but I cannot tell you what it is. I really appreciate that answer. I, I want to end, Jack, talking about just one last idea, which is Jesus himself. And and I'll, I'll frame it from some of the tension that I live in with this question and then give you a chance to speak on it. So as I've deconstructed the historical Jesus, I still find incredible meaning. I still find myself every day thinking about the Christ of the New Testament and thinking about the way in which that character 
interacted with the world and the things that we can learn from that. And I find those things profound. Yet I live in a religious system that um, is always trying to measure me by whether I believe in these things literally or not. There's there's great importance within Mormonism, whether you're in or whether you're on the, the edges or the margins or whether you're out, it becomes easy to discount you if you don't believe in Jesus literally. And, and while I don't um, no, while I don't hold that as like a definitive idea in my head, and I'm always wrestling with Jesus, the, the, the personage of the New Testament, rather than worrying about whether he actually rose on the third day or not, I find that he's a, an important part of my life in spite of the fact that my system looks at me and says, like, that's unacceptable. That can't be real. You can't access the atonement that way. I'm just curious because you're in a completely, you've grown up in a completely different religion. Um, you've, you've served as a bishop in that faith. You've been outspoken about this shift that you've had and that you see the world having. I'm just curious if maybe you could share with my listeners who have been on the same journey, if you can share with them how important Christ is to you, even if he didn't rise on the third day, if that makes sense. Well, he is important to me. And, and the third day is, a, is an interesting symbol. It's part of the, part of the Christian faith. It, it, the church doesn't, doesn't agree on the third day. If you read the Bible carefully, uh, it's, there's no day and he he rises from the dead on the third day, but he doesn't appear to anybody in the early part of that narrative. But uh, Jesus is to me a symbol of what human beings can become. He's uh, he's a bigger symbol than I can imagine. I don't know how to say he's God because uh, I don't know how God would be made known in a, in a human life. But he's as close to God as I know how to come. Uh, he lives fully. He loves wastefully. He he dares to be all that he can be, and that's terribly, terribly appealing to me. Uh, I don't take the the New Testament literally because the life of Jesus is told in the Gospels, was written between seventy three and hundred. Jesus died in thirty three. He died some forty years before the first Gospel was written. How did they capture him perfectly? No, they capture multiplicities of things about him, and they offer these multiplicities, and the church is the one that's that's tied these multiplicities down and tried to make it one thing. The church, atonement, what does atonement mean? I don't think that word has any meaning at all in, in, our, in our generation, but we still use the word, and we've got to get over using that word because I think it's a dead-end street. It leads us nowhere. But uh, the man, Jesus... Uh, I'd say that uh, when when I contemplate this Jesus and the power in this man, he, he is really overwhelming. He dies without without helping. Uh, let me say it this way: He dies without being worried about dying. He lives without being worried about living. He is who he is, whether he's living or dying. He tried to make him the king on Palm Sunday. And he did not did not change his way at all. They tried to kill him on Good Friday, and it did not change his way of living at all. He was clearly who he was, and and that's appealing to me, and that's part of what God means to me. So Jesus is my window into God, and when you get to the place where you begin to say, well, was he God? No, I don't think that makes any sense at all. He's my window into God. He's the same as God. He's what God is, but I don't go beyond that. And to me, that's as far as you need to go to to be a Christian. Beautiful, beautiful. That rings so so true to kind of where I'm at, and, and I think it's going to ring true to a lot of where the listeners are at. Um, I simply want to finish just saying thank you to you, uh, Bishop John Shelby Spong, um, who we're who we're talking with today. I just want to kind of wrap up saying an appreciation to you as I've as I've deconstructed my faith. I've looked out into the world for voices. Um, whether it be you, whether it be people like Richard Rohr, whether it be there's a younger gentleman by the name of Rob Bell, um, there's different podcasts out there that present a much more inclusive liberal Christianity, such as the Liturgist podcast. There's a lot of voices out there. You're one of them. As as I've listened to all those voices, you you all come from different perspectives. You all come from different angles. You all have different experiences. 
But there's some truth that seems unsayable, seems unspeakable, that that each of those voices, including you, are walking around the edges of that truth, and it feels like one of the realest things I've ever been a part of in my life is to wrestle with the things that you guys talk about. I just want to say to you personally, thank you for your life's work, what you have represented, what you have called us to, what you have encouraged us to, to lean into um, has meant so much to me and is going to mean so much and has meant so much to my listeners. Uh, I just want to say thank you for being on today and for your life's work. Thank you, Bill. One thing more I would say, a long time ago, a man wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. I think that book is where most people are today. The God anybody worships, whether it's in the Roman Catholic Church or the Protestant Church, the Evangelical Church, the Mormon Church, your God is simply too small. You've got to raise your sights to see the embrace of the holy all over the world. And when you do that, uh, you, you realize that there's a place for everybody. Amen. Amen, Bishop Spong. Thank you so much for being on today and Thank uh, you, Bill. appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee, How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee, how great Thou art.